0: Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gaia Land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, here's a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Love, Rinse, Repeat is supported by Uniting Mission and Education, part of the synod here in New South Wales ACT, and I thank them for their support. My guest today, uh, I'm very excited to have on, is Professor John McClendon III. Uh, Professor, welcome along.
1: Thank you, and I'm very happy to be here today. I've had a chance to look at previous uh, podcasts, and so I'm very excited about this afternoon.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you, and particularly to talk about your book, uh, Black Christology and the Quest for Authenticity, a philosophical appraisal, which is out uh, with Lexington Books. Um, you can get it wherever you get books, uh, or you can be contacting your local theological library for them to get it uh, as well. Uh, But before we get to the book, I guess, for those who don't know, uh, Dr. John McClendon III is professor in the Department of Philosophy at Michigan State University. His areas of interest include African American philosophers and philosophical traditions, African philosophy, Marxism, philosophy of sports. So, uh, you know, maybe we can get him to the Olympics, Olympics later, <laughs> and the uh, African American experience, <laughs> philosophy of religion, and African Americans. And uh, he's uh, got a number of publications to his name, and you'll be able to see his full bio in the show notes uh, below. Um, but particularly, people might be very interested in. Uh, his book philosophy of religion and the African-american experience conversations with my Christian friends so maybe let's 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 start with the just the broad thing of the book of, of black Christology and the quest for authenticity I guess you know what got you kind of interested in that this is something that you really wanted to explore to spend the time on um, you know, because I guess, as you, as we just heard in your bio, you're a philosopher. Um, so I guess what yeah. led you to go, you know what? I want to spend a bunch of time thinking about um, yeah. black theology and, and black Christology.
1: Sure, sure. That's always been of a particular interest, primarily because as a historian of African-American philosophy and philosophers, and that's one of my uh, recent books, Uh, that I co-authored with Dr. Stephen C. Ferguson, Um, there is a salient uh, feature of African-American philosophers who were both philosophers and theologians. And so you necessarily find that many of the people who are prominent African-American philosophers were also prominent theologians. Secondly... The preeminence of religion as a part of African-American culture, you cannot ignore that if you want to critically understand both the intellectual and popular culture of African-Americans. And thirdly, um, when I wrote the first book, Conversations with My Christian Friends, I have a chapter on Howard Thurman. And that chapter was very important because it was the impetus for writing that book. And what happened, and I I talk about it in the book, is that my father and I were both uh, working together and collaborating on research around Howard Thurman. Mm. And as a result, we were invited at that time, I was teaching at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, which is the alma mater of the theologian, Dr. Benjamin Mays. Mm. And we were invited to do a discussion on Howard Thurman. And so we were very fortunate because in Lewiston, Maine, it was for the Martin Luther King uh, Day program. And it gets very cold in January with a lot of snow in Maine. And But we had a standing room only uh, group who came to hear us talk about Howard Thurman. And uh, in this conversation, people were very enthusiastic. They raised some very good questions. And so afterwards, my father and I, when we were after the program, were talking. And my father said to me, he said, I wonder what people thought. Here I am, a devout Christian, and you're an atheist. (laughs) And I wonder how they took that to see such a conversation take place. And I must say that uh, my father and I always had open communication on issues of all issues, but particularly issues that are related to religion and theology. I used to buy him books and said, Dad, take a look at this. In fact, I bought him a copy of Dr. William R. Jones's book, Is God a White Racist?, which I thought was a very important book for him to be familiar with. In turn, um, we decided to do this research on Howard Thurman. And over the years, I used to invite my father to various institutions that I taught at, and one of those occasions included meeting James Cone. So we had an extensive conversation with Dr. Cone, and in that conversation came up a very important person who my father uh, taught me about as a young boy, Dr. Charles Leander Hill, who was both a philosopher and theologian, and he was the president of Wilberforce University. And uh, my dad actually looked like Dr. Hill. In fact, he tells me the story of the time. When Dr. Hill was walking across the campus and he saw my father, he says, oh, so you're the young man that they've been talking about. (laughs) And during my research on Dr. Hill, I spent a considerable amount of time in the archives of Wilberforce and doing his papers, interviewing former colleagues and students of Dr. Hill. I also interviewed his sister. And when I told his sister that my father looked so very much like Dr. Hill, she responded by saying, oh, he must be a handsome man, because my <laughs> brother was a very handsome man. And so in doing this research on Thurman, and after my father's death, I decided that this notion of a conversation was critically important. And so I wrote the book, Philosophy of Religion and the African American Experience, Conversations with My Christian Friends, and in the process, a number of issues uh, were generated in writing that book. But that book became a rather long book, it's over 400 pages. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, we got to do a second book. <laughs> and that second book became then Black Christology. And mm-hmm. so I was able to continue in more detail around some of the questions as this notion of Black theology and Black uh, liberation theology generated a notion about black Christology and what it meant so that's the context for writing the book Black Christology.
0: Hmm. Thank you for that so so thinking about the book I guess one of the key I you know as you say as you said there you kind of develop you going to look at black theology but to do so necessarily leads you into to black Christology because that's so much the kind of the, the centerpiece uh, and and the grounding of a lot so many of the claims and particularly I guess um, as you explore in the book the claim to authenticity so, so one thing you're That's kind of exploring right. throughout is that black theology is claim you know the claims of black liberation theology is that there is an authentic form of christianity that um uh, that the experience of blackness and the lens of black, the black experience can lead you to that is um antithetical to to uh, another kind of white Christianity and white theology. Um, so talk to me about like what I guess drew you to that that particular focus on on authenticity, on that claim toward authenticity, and, and I guess where what were the problems? I guess you you know you foresaw there that you think that's what you needed to kind of really
1: narrow the focus sure. onto. Sure. Sure. I think the springboard around this notion of authenticity centers on the fact that black theology as a movement, which emerged in the late 1960s, begins with the presumption that white Christianity is inauthentic. And hence, if white Christianity and white Christianity is inauthentic, then black theology and black Christianity as a component part represents the authentic form of Christianity. But within that claim, there is another very important and decisive claim, and that claim is the authenticity of blackness. And that was presumed by uh, the pioneers of black theology. And I thought that to be problematic because from a philosophical standpoint, if one claims to be authentically black, then what does that mean for other African-American theologians that preceded that development in the late 1960s? Does it emerge, that is, Black theology, Black liberation theology, emerge out of a vacuum? Or, in fact, is there an antecedent uh, history that we need to examine to understand that very course of development? And that, most of the literature had ignored In part, that was due to the fact that um, the proponents of black liberation theology, uh, Dr. Cohn and and, um, uh, Will Moore, uh, did a documentary, History of Black Theology. In fact, it's two volumes. Mm. However, they consciously left out the critics of black theology, the other theologians who raised questions in a very substantive way about the direction in which they were headed. And in 1969, the Journal of, of Religious Thought, which is published at Howard University, it is the oldest uh, theological journal among African Americans. It was started by, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Dr. William Stuart Nelson who was, among many things, a close associate of Dr. W.B. Du Bois and Mahatma Gandhi. He worked not only uh, on their particular intellectual traditions, but he was practically engaged in both Du Bois' Pan-African conferences, as well as demonstrating with Gandhi in India. Mm. And so... I'm raising this question, well, if it all started in 1969, how do we place a William Stuart Nelson mm-hmm. and an issue that they had in 1969 where several critiques were raised about black theology? Mm-hmm. Not to mention um, Howard Thurman, who I mentioned earlier, had met with Gandhi mm-hmm. in the 1930s. He was the first African-American to meet with Gandhi and Gandhi was very impressed with him. And in the discussions that he had with Gandhi, the question came up Well, in light of the fact that you are Black and facing oppression at the hands of white Christians, how can you be a Christian? Mm-hmm. And Thurman went on to elaborate on what he calls the distinction between the religion of Jesus and the religion about Jesus. Mm-hmm. And this line of demarcation is critically important because from Thurman's point of view, one should not be engaged in a religion about Jesus, but the religion of Jesus, which he concludes is Judaism. Hmm. Now, if we see Jesus in connection with Christianity, then Thurman argues that that's a false conception historically. And that the very quest for the historical Jesus departs from what we know as conventionally Christology, which is a matter of faith, not a matter of history. Mm. Now, Cone and others argue that they're one and the same. So Cone says, for me, the historical Jesus, as well as the um, Christological notion, the matter of faith, are one and the same. But when you make that conflation, when you mix the two, then you have to go back to Thurman who says that Jesus was a Jew. And if Jesus was a Jew and he held to Judaism, then to understand the authenticity surrounding the historical Jesus is to understand Judaism. And that, in fact, what becomes officially Christianity emerges in the context of the Roman Empire and it becomes the official religion of the oppressors of the very Jews that Jesus was a leader of. Mm -hmm. So that raises some very important questions in terms of how theological formulations regarding Jesus and Christianity and the meaning of Christianity uh, come into play. So these are some of the factors that become very important to understand. And most of the people who are part of the black liberation theology movement, not all, but most are Christians mm. who make the presumption that Christianity is the religion of Jesus and not a religion about Jesus. And hence then they start from that starting point. So for us to critically and philosophically examine those theological claims, in my estimation, is crucial. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think it's really helpful in that chapter where you talk
0: about the you know, what is that relationship between you know, black theology that comes and is so named and you know, theology done by black people before that time. And, um, and you've explored a lot of it really helpfully there for us. One part I was interested in is you talk at a point about how what came before, I guess, there was a focus on racism and on the institutions that supported and upheld um, racism, and the switch that comes in with Black theology is a focus on uh, whiteness as, uh, as, a, as a larger kind of um, concept. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that move that happened and, I guess, where you see um, some of the issues
1: arise in, in that shift? Sure. In that shift, because black liberation theology, as it initially was called, black theology, then the word liberation was, um, afterward, it was attached to it, is that the notion was that whiteness was the problem. Now, conceptualizing whiteness as a problem comes immediately out of the context of this movement in the late 60s because it attached itself to black nationalism and a black nationalist ideological framework. And what Cone in particular was trying to do was to save Christianity from being rejected by black nationalists who came to understand Christianity as the oppressor's religion. And what Cone wanted to do was to sell, if you will, Christianity to the black power advocates who had rejected it as an oppressor's religion by claiming then that Christianity could be in concert with black nationalism and the black power, black revolutionary movement. So what Cohn is attempting to do is to cross that bridge, which had been established by the black power movement Because as Vincent Harding, a very important African-American theologian had written about, that black power in itself became the religion. Mm. Black power was that religious focus that these activists had taken, and they had rejected Christianity. So Cone found it necessary then to say, look, Christianity, authentic Christianity, is not the white man's religion. And he goes out to elaborate then how then a black nationalist viewpoint is consistent with Christianity. <clears throat> Excuse me. What becomes pertinent here with regard to your question is that the previous African-American theologians, Howard Thurman, William Stuart Nelson, Frank T. Wilson, uh, Richard McKinney, etc., Mm. All of those people were always fighting against racism, Mm. both in their works, in their research, as well, practically. They were activists. In fact, uh, Stuart Nelson, who founded the Journal of Religious Thought, as I mentioned earlier, and worked with the boys and Gandhi, was also a mentor to Dr. King. Mm. Dr. King's real serious introduction to Gandhi came by way of William Stuart Nelson. He had read about Gandhi. He knew Gandhi because in part, uh, his mentor at Morehouse, uh, Dr. George Kelsey, uh, uh, and Dr. S- uh, Professor Samuel Williams at Morehouse were intimately involved in studying Gandhi, and they were Baptist ministers who were engaged in activism. Hmm. Later, in fact, um, Samuel Williams and King actually worked together in Atlanta around several issues, and they corresponded and You can read their correspondence in the King papers. Hmm. What becomes significant is that Kelsey was never anti white he never framed the question of white people as the problem. he framed it as racism was the problem. Hmm. And in fact, Kelsey was one of the key uh, theologians who began to articulate the importance of fighting against racism. And so, but he was not a black nationalist. He didn't take this view that it's a matter of fighting whitey. It was a matter of fighting racism. And he he warns that if one falls into the trap by saying that black is beautiful, is the inverse that is to say the black is beautiful means that white is ugly, then there's a big mistake here. Now, we don't see much of that discussion from Dr. Cohn. We don't see that discussion by many of the people who pioneered that because they assume whiteness was the problem rather than specify the distinction between whiteness and racism. And so these earlier people thought gallantly against racism, both in their theoretical scholarly works as well as practically, but they were not anti-white. What Cone begins with is an anti-white proposition. In fact, I have a quote uh, in my book uh, from Dr. George Nancy where he quotes uh, Dr. Cone about uh, if you embrace whiteness, then you're on the wrong track. And so... Hating whiteness is uh, is the key question, and this is something that Kelsey would reject, McKinney would reject, uh, and of course, we know that Dr. King rejected that. These were people who were mentors to him, and William Stewart Nelson in particular, and his introdu- introducing Gandhi to Dr. King in a scholarly way was very important in that matter. Mm, thank you for that.
0: Um it's interesting as you were talking about that because I think I was just thinking about the um proliferation of of you know kind of current books being written about um race and 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 whiteness and um that that are really like you know, uh, emerged and sort of flourishing as its own kind of pocket industry at the moment written by a handful of people and it's interesting to think about this this trajectory that starts here and and the way it now kind of is um, Influencing so much of the discourse of the way these the problems that we face
1: are are framed. Yeah, right. In fact, my fifth chapter uh, directly takes up that topic. Uh, Dr. George Nancy, who is a a colleague. In fact, Mm. he is the editor of the series in which my book was published, Uh, published a book on whiteness and the question of what would Jesus do? And so I devote that fifth chapter directly Mm this question about whiteness and what that means, and how does race then become a theological question? See, with Cone, for example, Cone starts with the notion that race and blackness in particular is not just a social category, mm. it's a theological category. And I go through an extensive discussion for any reader of the book, you may it may take some time to work through it. It's a kind of a dense philosophical ar- argument, but I think it's worth the time. Mm-hmm. But what I bring out is that he says that his ultimate reality is blackness. Well, the notion of ultimate reality, if you read people like J.T. robinson um, talks about the fact, Pauline Tillich, is that Ultimate reality is another way of saying God in Christian terminology. Theologians found that many of the critiques of the proof of God led into some real problems. So how do you get around it? You say, well, we're really talking about ultimate reality. So you can't argue about whether ultimate reality exists. (laughs) So given that we're talking about ultimate reality, we can simply say then that God is the ground of one's existence. Now, what Cone does is to argue that blackness is his ultimate reality. And to the extent that there's anything called a universal ultimate reality, then it is contingent upon embracing blackness as the ultimate reality. And so I go through a detailed uh, argument in in breaking that apart so you can see very clearly that um, Cone runs into some very – logical problems in trying to make that elaboration. Because if blackness is ultimate reality, in effect, then blackness is God. Well, if blackness is God, how can you call what you're talking about authentic Christianity? He leads himself on out by saying then that what is universal ultimate reality is also uh, there, but it's dependent upon blackness. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes his formal God concept. But that formal God concept then leads the perimeters of Christian thought, because from the perimeters of Christian thought, God is an absolute being and has no dependency on any other. Mm -hmm. So if you argue then that blackness is ultimate reality and hence the universal ultimate reality is dependent upon this primary reality of blackness, then you still have yourself in in a bind logically in terms of the authenticity of Christianity. So what becomes significant here is now race has entered the question, not as a social category, which describes social relations, institutions and practices, rather it now becomes a theological presumption. Now for Cohn, this theological presumption rests on a very curious thing where he says, blackness is designated by white oppression of black people. Well, wait a minute. If blackness is at the core of white oppression of black people, then this notion of blackness, which is your ultimate reality, is dependent upon white people oppressing black people. So if you don't have white oppressors, then God disappears. So why rely upon God if you're a theologian and said we have to be dependent on God? No, all you have to do is get rid of white oppressors and the issue is solved. But, of course, Cone is a theologian. He's not a political revolutionary. So he's trying to deal with this as the, as the theological fodder for his work. But we see there's many problems. And unfortunately, after reviewing a lot of literature, I have not seen to date any real critique of Cone's basic presumptions. Most of the people who are opposed to Cone just merely dismiss him because they see his work as too radical. In fact, uh, Professor Camacho uh, points that out, you know, and I I cite him Mm -hmm. in his work. And I see that you've had him on your show before. Mm -hmm. Um, So most of the right wings just simply reject him for what Camacho calls Marxist victimology, (laughs) Yeah. But, if we really look at it and offer a critical assessment, then we find there's a lot problematic to uh, cones work and unfortunately, there's not been serious scholarship that does the kind of critique that I offer in this book mm.
0: now, thank you for that. And i think um, just to affirm what you said at the beginning, it is like you know a, a very detailed nuanced argument, but like it builds those really important implications that you say like that that has a sense that if you know, yeah, God becomes dependent on blackness, then why do black people need God, as you say? Yeah. Um, and and also, yes, this idea of um, that is actually still dependent on maybe this prior act of, of white oppression. Um, and you talk, interestingly, you know, how even there's so much shifts if you, like, use the word suffering instead of oppression, right? Like that, mm-hmm. um, and, and it works, you know, synonymously, but, like, it all of a sudden changes the, Oh, all of a sudden, why does black suffering need to be, the, the central aspect of of, ex, of Black experience, kind of thing.
1: Um, That's and, right. That's and right. That and, and yeah. And part of that, I'm responding to a citation I give to Anthony Penn, hmm. who raises this question about ontological Blackness and, and the problems that are inherent in the idea that to be Black is to be oppressed, or in his term, suffering. So if we just eliminate the term suffering, or at least substitute, from suffering to oppression, we're we're really looking at the very dilemma that Cone and others find themselves in.
0: Mm. Um, and I guess another thing that just while we're in this kind of section of the book is um, we start to talk about um, again with Cone with the the use of uh, of blackness, which you know kind of like in, in Cone's own work, you know, has this kind of dual function of yes, is pointing at kind of an ontological reality, but is also kind of a symbolic. Um, you know in, in a Tillich sense of it, it participates and pushes beyond um standing in for kind of all oppression but i mean you have a critique for this that you know in a way kind of both flattens out um oppression and and, and you know um kind of ignores you know the various nuances of, of totally other kinds of, of suffering that um other you know um, marginalized communities would face
1: yeah i mean it's the issue of the black-white dichotomy, which frames then uh, Combs' paradigm. Mm. It's you're either black or you're white, you know, and he says blackness is to be uh, exploited or oppressed in the context of a white world. Well, that means that are white people who are oppressed in this world then oppressed? Well, because he has a black-white dichotomy, we can logically assume he doesn't mean poor white people mm. who are exploited within the system. But it does mean that other people of color who are uh, non-white and thus in the affirmative people of color um, have to become black. Well, that's Mm -hmm. not true. And that really, I mean, if we take, for example, a paradigmatic issue with regard to race, we go to a place uh, like Guyana, which is in South America Mm -hmm. and part of the Caribbean uh, cultural tradition. Uh, The key race issue there is between Indian and African people. Mm. There's been race riots over the years in Guyana regarding Indians and Africans. Indian, Indian labor was brought to Guyana in the wake of the ending of slavery. Black people in Guyana refused to work on the plantations, and so they brought in Indian labor. Today, in fact, the majority population is Indian in Guyana, a slight majority, but There's this Indian-African contradiction centered on the the issue of race. Well, then, what are Indians now? Are they white and then the Africans are black? I mean, how do we begin to understand then indigenous and first world people and their oppression? Do we say, oh, well, they're just black because they suffer at the hands of white people? So that's a a very simplistic reductionist move that he makes by making it a black-white dichotomy Uh, Later, he tries to bring in class in his later works, but he doesn't really reconstruct his black-white dichotomy. He merely adds on. And so what happened is that what we see is that it's an added factor rather than a reconceptualization, just like the issue of gender and womenist theology is added on. He was criticized by a number of African-American women theologians who says he didn't Um, Address this, so he added it on. But the add-on approach, what, what I call the factors approach, does not deal with the question of primacy and how we understand then the primacy of issues of exploitation and oppression and what then becomes the centerpiece. From a theological position, what becomes significant to me is that theologians who fail to address the fundamental questions then find themselves in a quagmire because how do you talk about material transformation when you're looking at the viewpoint that God is a transcendent being and how does God then intervene in what are material realities? Mm. And this, of course, the presumption for Cohn and others was that God is on the side of the oppressed. Uh, Dr. William R. Jones and why his book is so important. And I would strongly suggest that for the listening audience today, that they get his book. Is God a White Racist? Raises the question. Well, if God is on the side of the oppressed, and he raises this to Cone, Cone fails to really answer him. He says, if God is on the side of the oppressed, then how do you explain the fact that we are uh, being so? oppressed and continuing in this status as mm-hmm. oppressed people. If God is on our side, then we have to rethink that. <laughs> Perhaps God is a racist. He raises that not as a description, but as a as a hypothesis. And so when Jones raises that, of course, uh, Cone's response is in his book, God of the Oppressed, he gives a very weak response. I talk about that in my other book. And the weak response is, well, Jesus is the liberator because the question that Cohn raises: what is the liberating event? And he just said, Jesus, well, wow, if that was the liberating event, why the hell are we still being oppressed? <laughs> so how do we understand that, you know, in real material terms? Mm. And Cohn does not have a real answer for that. And unfortunately, uh, his passing, um, did not provide me with the opportunity of continuing that conversation. I I was hoping that he could have given a response to both of my books and and how I treat his work.
0: Mm. I guess one of the things that's key uh, in the book is this idea that, so as we talked about, that that the move in black theology is to claim that this is an authentic expression of Christianity. And for that reason, Christianity doesn't have to be done away with. Um, What you have to address is, the um, abomination of, of of white theology, which has utilised Christianity for, for oppressive means. But if you get access to the authentic, there's life-giving, liberating potential. Um, and this is a move that you see in, in other spaces too, as people try to maybe wrestle the Bible out of, you know, patriarchy and claim that actually if you read it in a particular way or follow it in a particular way. So, you know, in the book you point, though, that you can't just assert that this particular expression of Christianity Is authentic. There needs to be an external, more universal, objective idea that 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 you can then claim that your kind of tradition um, attends to or is more faithful to. Um, So, I guess part of, I guess, what you're getting into is, you know, is there an authentic Christianity that actually offers the kind of thing that 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 the movement of black theology claims it does, right? Like, or is it actually Mm -hmm. that it's not the the issue? Isn't White theology or white Christianity, the issue itself is Christianity. Um, and it's, it's that which, you know, so, so there isn't like a claim to a, a, an authentic, pre-corrupted, um, pre-problematic thing that exists that we can now tap into.
1: Yes. Uh, I see the whole thrust in the, in the significance of the book is that the whole thrust towards authenticity is a pseudo-question. mm mm-hmm as a rather yet, a pseudo problem. It's a problem which is put out there and says, okay, let's find what is authentic. And I use an illustration in the book where I talk about the distinction between counterfeit money Mm -hmm. and what is authentic money, legal tender. How do we determine what is authentic tender and counterfeit tender? If we just say we'll create something and call that authentic, then we haven't solved the problem. We just created another counterfeit, and you have a host of counterfeits with no measure to say what is. So we do have objective criteria as to what is legal tender, and this is why you can go to jail in any country in the world if you try to make your own money and pass it off as authentic in terms of the currency that is in use in that given country. So, what becomes important then is what is the criteria that we establish for authenticity? And here we understand that if we look at Christianity from a historical standpoint, rather than the search for authenticity, then what we understand is that historically, Christianity has taken many forms. And those many forms have to be analyzed in their historical context. This is why Thurman is so important, because Thurman makes the argument that what is Christianity is not the religion of Jesus. It is the religion of the Roman oppressors of Jews of which Jesus was a part. Jesus was fighting against Roman oppression, and then as such then, you cannot say that Jesus was a Christian. Historically, if we understand the formation of Christianity as a historical uh, development, it's post-Jesus. Jesus didn't say anything about Christians. If we if we presume that there was a historical person, Jesus, Christianity is post-Jesus. It's what other people began to argue about in theological terms, then establishing various doctrines and dogma to, to justify that. And so it's nothing that happens, you know, in heaven. It happens on earth where human beings are then structuring their notions about what would be Christianity. This is why we have the notions of the idea of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a very social process where some people are determined to be not orthodox and others are Mm. and depending on what side you're on you can be on the side of orthodoxy in one instance and and for the other side not Mm. so what we understand then there is no authentic christianity there are multiple expressions of christianity which take on historical forms and those historical forms are what we have to analyze and then come to understand after all the Christianity adopted by African Americans in the United States was the Christianity of slaveholders. It's very clear. And one of the things that Professor McKinney raised this, he says, look, if you look at how black people came to adopt Christianity, they adopted it because they saw a certain universality attached to Christianity. And so even though the people who were the ones teaching them Christianity they could look beyond that and say, well, look, if they say all people are children of God, then that's a universal principle. So we can take that and run. We can shape it in a way and base it on that creed. But there was no theological distinction between what was formed as black churches and what were white churches. There was not this notion of a distinctive black theology theology. It was just the African-Americans were forced out of the white denominations and they formed their own churches. So the idea that we began a black theology on the notion of the black church, McKinney argues it's a false historical analysis. It's not true that this is why when they formed the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, it was essentially a Methodist church. It didn't have a distinct black doctrine. In fact, in many instances, when we look at those churches, they tried to push themselves away from those aspects of African religion that still were retained by African Americans. Mm -hmm. And so they had a problem with that. In fact, I'm now writing a book on Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, and I'm talking about this very interesting thing among African thinkers, including Nkrumah, where they're trying to fit Christianity into the African traditional belief system Mm. and how that leads to an antagonism and tension that remains throughout because no matter where you move from Catholicism to Protestantism or even, as he called himself uh, as of his autobiography in 1957, non-denominational, there's always that tension, Mm. you see, because the belief systems that undergird African traditional uh, religions is fundamentally different than the belief systems of Christianity. And so people like John M. Beattie, uh, who was really an a African Christian, tries to cover over that by saying, well, it's all one and the same. No, it's not. There's some fundamental differences. And this is why you see missionaries going to Africa because they're saying Africans got it wrong and that their indigenous religions are wrong. And that they go to other parts of the world and say they have it wrong. And when they say they have it wrong, we say, well, we got to get you on the right path. And while we're getting you on the right path, we got our friends over here who's going to restructure your society under their political economic domination. And now you have an Australia, which becomes a white settler colony, right? And what happens yeah. to indigenous people? Mm-hmm. And that's true throughout the world. So what we have to understand, we look at Christianity from its historical context, mm. rather than the search for authenticity. Mm. White Christianity is just as authentic as a black Christianity, or an Aboriginal Christianity, or an uh, African Christianity, whatever you want to frame those Christianities in. So that's the problem. What we understand then is that Christianity, as Karl Marx pointed out, played a role in the exploitation, not only of colonial people, but working class people. And so when you understand that material reality, what we want to do is transform the material reality and not get caught up on the idealism, which is affixed with Christianity and the search for some kind of authentic Christianity.
0: Thank you so much. That That is a, a really helpful, um, uh, clarifying a lot in my own thinking and my own work on it. I really appreciate that. And I've appreciated this whole conversation and I've appreciated the book. So folks, if you've liked what you've heard today, and I'm sure you have, and you want to know more, because we've only touched on most of our conversation centered on a couple of chapters. There's a lot more yeah. in the book that you can explore uh, as you go. So Black Christology and the Quest for Authenticity, a Philosophical Appraisement by John H. the III, uh, and with Lexington Books is how you can pick it up. Um, there will be a link in the show notes below. Uh, Is there anything else you want to uh, draw people's attention to, promote? uh, I mean, we heard a bit about some of the other work that's coming out, but um, anything else you want to draw folks' attention to right now?
1: One thing I would like to draw people's attention to is um, my other work I mentioned that I co-authored with Dr. Stephen Ferguson, African-American Philosophers and Philosophy. Let's see if I can uh, put it in front of the screen Mm. and tell me if, if you can see it. Clearly. is that bit, there we go have got the pictures it's a great cover I love the uh... okay <laughs> that's our book that came also out in 2019 and we really want to see people get a hold of mm. this book and this book is the first book to introduce philosophy by way of the works of African American philosophers oh, cool. traditionally people Will learn philosophy. And and the idea would be that there's no such thing as people of African descent who do philosophy. So I used to tell my students that the only thing that they will see black in the standard textbook is the ink. (laughs) And we would supplement it with the work that I had done. Well, we Mm. finally completed the book. In 2019, Mm. uh, it's by Bloomsbury, Bloomsbury Mm -hmm. Press. Uh, The paperback is very affordable, Mm. and we really want to push people to get that book. Mm. The very last chapter deals with the philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. This is a comprehensive book. What we do in this book is actually take up every major subfield in philosophy. We deal with the history of philosophy. We deal with metaphilosophy, which is the problem dealing with what is the nature of philosophy itself, sometimes referred to as the philosophy Mm. of philosophy. And African-Americans, excuse me, addressed all those questions. Mm. We deal with uh, axiology, which is value theory. And we deal with both the question of what is the values in general we also deal with ethics specifically, and we deal with aesthetics. And in the aesthetic section, we deal not only with literature, but we also deal with music. And we're really Mm -hmm. excited about how we deal with music because we look at African-American music and it's as a derived African form of music. Mm -hmm. And we even get into discussions about the pentatonic scale. And we talk about people like Paul Robeson, who was an immensely important person not only as an artist and singer and actor, but also as a theoretical uh, person who looked at uh, ethnomusicology and the very structures of music. Uh, And then we address also then uh, the questions relating to um, science. Mm. So we take up the philosophy of science and we look at both biology and physics. Mm. Uh, We look at the work of Ernest Jess. Dr. Ernest Jess was a biologist who wrote a very important book dealing with the origins of life. Mm. And we take that question up and there was an African-American philosopher, Dr. William T. Fontaine, who makes an assessment of the work done by just. Mm. And it's a very exciting section. And then we take up physics (laughs) and look at physics in particular, the works of African-American philosophers as it relates to the theory of relativity. Einstein, by the way, not only is the progenitor of the theory of relativity, but he had a close association with a number of (laughs) African-Americans. And what we do, we look at what African American philosophers have to say about this very crucial question of space and time. Mm. There are many proponents of the theory of relativity, and there were antagonists to it. <laughs> Robert T. Brown, who in, 19, in the, uh, 1919 wrote a book called The Mystery of Space, uh, actually develops an attack on the theory of relativity. Mm. And he's very important in that regard. He wrote this book uh, in a manner that they wouldn't know he was black so he could get it published. But he, he addresses issues in non Euclidean geometry and what is called the, the uh, fourth dimension. Because when we think of relativity, space, of course, has three dimensions. But when we add in time, Einstein saw that as a continuum. So we talk about the fourth dimensional factor where space-time is a continuum. But we we address all of that, Mm -hmm. and then we end up with our last chapter, which I think is so important, on the philosophy of religion. Mm -hmm. And what we do there, we make a distinction between religious philosophy and the philosophy of religion. And that's an important analytical distinction. Religious philosophy would fall under what most people think of as philosophical theology. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference? The difference between religious uh, philosophy or philosophical theology from the philosophy of religion is that where one assumes as axiomatic their theological position and then uses philosophy as a justification for those beliefs. Mm. That's what religious philosophy, and most African-American thinkers fall under that category as Howard Thurman, for example, was a religious philosopher. He was not a philosopher of religion. A philosopher of religion does not assume axiomatically that theological claims are true. They're open to critical assessment. And therefore, philosophy is used as an instrument of analysis to understand the validity and veracity of those theological claims. So what we do in that last chapter is take that up in addition to the psychology of religion. And the reason why we think that is important is because the psychological dimension plays a big part in African-American culture. And we talk about why a student may find this chapter on philosophy or religion difficult because of the psychological nature of their uh, embracing of religion. And so we try to ease the students and it's okay if you feel uneasy about this because we understand that psychologically this plays a big part and not only how you view the world, but how you view yourself. And so it becomes significant then to stand back and say, okay, let me take a look at why this could be important to me as a student in a course of philosophy. So um, that's the one thing that I would like to promote. I've i I really think that this book is very important, mm. and hopefully, if the time permits it a in a future time, we could come back and talk about that book and perhaps that last chapter in particular.
0: That would be wonderful. I was thinking, as you said i was gonna I was gonna offer the same thing, so I'm glad you brought it up. so, yeah. so now yeah, I feel right. emboldened to reach out at a future point. but um, that, that's sure. really great. I'll put the link to that book as well in the show notes because that sounds um yeah just just uh, you know, vital uh, and really fascinating so. So thank you for that, and thank you so much for this conversation. And, yes, and hopefully you'll be back, back before you know it. So sure, I look forward. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, and we'll see you all next week.